All right, let's um, bow our heads, close our eyes, humble our hearts, and be still. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits. He pardons all of our iniquities. Amen. He redeems our life from the pit. He'll not always keep his anger. He's not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Father, we just sang our sins, though they are many, your mercy is more. Thank you for your kessid, for your loving kindness for the incredible mercy that you have shown us through Christ. We deserve nothing, you said, by nature. We are worthy of your wrath for our rebellion in Adam. But you loved us and you sought us, and you revealed the gospel to us that we could choose to believe. And we are so grateful for the new standing that we have. As we think about debt, we know there is a debt we never could have paid, and it's the debt of sin but you have paid it so wondrously with your incredible rich blood, Lord Jesus. And then you have gone just as you promised and sent the Spirit to live in us, our Comforter, the one who bears witness to our spirit that we are indeed children of God. Thank you for sealing us with him for the day of redemption, that the work you've begun you will complete. We know in the interim you've called us to live lives of believers, set apart, different from that of the world. And yet we know so often the lives of your children are not always that different, even in this area that we're studying. But you have told us to renew our mind, to bring our thinking in conformity with the truth of Scripture. Lord Jesus, you said, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So use your word tonight and the principles that are found here that we can apply them here in this 21st century in which we find ourselves. Be with us, teach us, Spirit of God, guide us, lead us, convict us, reprove us, and encourage us. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, tonight we are continuing the last in this section, number four, on debt-free living. Just to bring you up to speed where we have been so far, we have begun this section by looking at God's basic plan in relation to debt. We saw that the principle that God established in the Old Testament, that if Israel would obey Him, they would be the lenders. If they would disobey him, then they would be the borrowers, which tells you right off that not all debt is sin. God has established a principle about borrowing, and he taught us, as we saw in that major Roman numeral one, that some debt is of necessity in this life, especially for those who are poor. 
And then we looked at some common questions about the very nature of debt. Uh, when is a person is debt? We distinguished credit from debt. We talked about does Romans 13.8 really teach that debt is sin? And is there more than one kind of debt? And indeed, we saw that. Then in Roman numeral three, if you were here, we looked at the process, this six-step process that leads us into debt. And then last time, we looked at five negative consequences of debt. Um, and uh, actually, we focused on just four. Um, debt that leads to slavery, to entanglement. Uh, it, it presumes on the future. And it basically expresses dissatisfaction by living beyond our God-given means. Um, then we began to delve a little bit into some commonly asked questions about debt. And we began last time also by looking at, are consolidation loans advisable to solve my debt problems? And we saw that while they could be, as a general rule, they're not. And we looked at some of the biblical principles that are often violated when someone moves in that direction. Uh, we talked about our debt settlement companies an advisable way to solve my debt problems. And generally speaking, the answer, of course, is no. And then we left off with the question, is it wrong to co-sign a note? And we're on page 106 of the handout, if you are there. And we looked at numbers 23 through 25 as we finished that when you co-sign a note, you're helping someone to go into debt, and very often you're robbing that individual of the opportunity to watch God provide. And so you short-circuit uh, their spiritual growth as stewards. Uh, we saw that in most cases when notes are co-signed, it's because uh, people are unwilling to wait on God for His timing. They want what they want, and they want it now. Um, we saw, noted there under point 24, that if God says that those who co-sign a note typically demonstrate that they lack sense, and if God says that guaranteeing a note for a stranger will often cause you to suffer for it, then it would be wise to listen to God. And then we finished for one to co-sign a note and be in the will of God. They must be discerning. They must commit the situation to prayer possibly seek the counsel of someone else and have the resources to pay it back. But generally speaking, general principle, you should never co-sign a note. Generally speaking, if someone needs you to co-sign a note, it's because the bank says they're not credit worthy. And we would be wise to heed that. All right, that's where we've been. So we begin here on point D tonight. Uh, is it wrong to use credit cards? So fasten your pew belts. We're going to run tonight. Uh, the history of credit cards can be divided really into five phases. Phase one, the first use of credit cards in the United States began in the 1920s when petroleum companies began to issue them to purchase gas. Uh, it was very popular for people to have gas cards, and not one, but sometimes ten of every major gas outlet. Uh, phase two, the first multi-use card was introduced in the 1950s by the Diners Club, which uh, could be used in a variety of establishments. Uh, technically, it was not a credit card because you had to pay it in full every month, but it was really uh, taking on a, a national tenor, and restaurants especially uh, use those. It, it, the, the genesis of it is kind of interesting. A couple of guys eating in a restaurant one night, and the guy forgot his wallet, and then he came up with the bright idea that they should create a diner's card, and so it took off nationwide. The first nationwide charge card, and that's really what the diner's club was, it was a charge card because it had to be paid in full, was the American Express card in 1958. 
along with the Bank AmeriCard, as it was called. I had a Bank AmeriCard, and it was uh, shortly thereafter changed and renamed to a Visa. Uh, but the Bank AmeriCard became a charge card, and uh, it became known as Visa. 1966, their credit card went worldwide as foreign countries such as Japan, Mexico, Canada, and Western Europe began to honor American credit cards. 2019, the microchip implants are being used in various countries to replace cash and credit. That was a major headline last week, of course, in Sweden, where I think some 4,000 people in one particular town, you know, put in for the chip uh, to make it really, really simple so that you don't have to have a wallet or even a phone. You just scan your wrist. Pretty simple um, way in which to handle it. Phase six, still to come, the mark of the beast, in order to be able to buy or sell any and all goods. And he causes all, John wrote, the small and the great, the rich and the poor, and the free men and the slaves to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. And he provides that no one be able to buy or sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. Now, this is a canceled American Express card. I did not want to throw it away because my security card is 0666. You're welcome to look at it afterwards. I thought, well, they sent that to a preacher. That's, that's fun. 666. But there's coming a day when the whole world's economies will be under a singular control. They could certainly use the electronics. There's no uh, way to get around that. Uh, and they could certainly use other marks, even tattoos. Point two there, it is important to understand the advantages of using credit cards. One of the main advantages of having a credit card is that it can have a positive effect on your credit score when you use it wisely. Uh, when all my children uh, were able to get a credit card under their name, I encouraged them to do so. Most freshmen in college are offered the opportunity uh, to get a Discover card or something. It's usually, or it was back then, they had Sears cards too, and usually a $500 limit. I said, no, you need to get one, and, and then when you pay it after a while, someone else will offer you one, and, and you need to establish your own credit. That's, that's important. By using your credit card regularly and making your monthly payments on time, you can build a solid credit history that says to potential lenders, you can trust me. When you consistently pay your bill on time, you can improve your credit score, qualifying you for low interest rates on mortgage and business loans, saving you money. So that's just good stewardship. And again, too, when you encourage your child to get a credit card and to use it in the way I'm going to express here in a moment, you're teaching them those principles now. You don't wait until they leave your home and they say, eh, I guess I need to get a credit card. Now, this is part of the training in the transition process. Even if you are debt-free and never plan to borrow another penny, it's advantageous to have an excellent credit score. You know, there's one guy on the radio who said, it doesn't matter what your credit score is if you're debt-free. Yes, it does. It matters. There's advantages to having a high credit score even if you're debt-free because it allows you to get a better price on such expenses as auto and homeowner's insurance. Your homeowner's insurance and auto insurance may be higher than it needs to be for the simple fact that they use all these formulas, and one of the formulas is your credit score. So if you have a high credit score, that will reduce 
with other factors that you can employ, uh, lower insurance costs for your home and other things. So it is important. Um, depending uh, on your credit card, you can earn a variety of awards, rewards. Um, my son and I, Jordan, we have this little competition going on. I've received in the last four years four cards, you know, an application, and they said if I spend like $3,000 over four months, they'll give me $500. It's pretty good. I've done it four times. Uh, that was like free money. Um, so I felt very blessed that they sent me that application. And so we put everything on the credit card. We do anyway, and I'll explain how in a moment, but it's free money. Beyond that, you get rewards sometimes. Uh, a kickback, you know, 1% or 2% or 3%, depending on the product that you are buying. Um, some cards allow uh, free life insurance on an airline flight. Uh, airline miles, some free trip cancellation and rental car coverage. Like whenever I go see my mother, I use my American Express card because the American Express card I have allows me to waive any kind of additional fee when I rent a car there in Boston and I'm fully covered. It's included in the card. So you usually, it's advantage if you have to rent a car on occasion to have a card that does that. Beyond the advantages, consider the disadvantages and why most people get into trouble using credit cards. Unpaid balances on credit cards can carry monthly interest rates upward of 17% or higher. Today it was 16.46%. That was the national average that Americans are paying. Now, some are paying 23 and 24% on a credit card, uh, but the national average is right around 17%. The cost to carry an unpaid balance from month to month means that you are paying a monthly premium on the balance. For instance, if you have a $3,000 outstanding balance at the average 17%, and you pay only the minimum, monthly minimum, it will take you 10.5 years to pay off that $3,000 balance, costing you $2,241 in interest charges. People think this is like, this doesn't happen to people. It happens all the time. It's incredible how many Americans fall into this. What are some general guidelines for avoiding debt? What are some general guidelines for avoiding debt? One, consider using debt only for appreciating assets or in those special cases where your debt is a tool to help you to generate income. Is it a tool? Do you, do you need this boat because you just want to go out and water ski and borrow money on a boat that you don't have money to pay cash for? Or are you a crabber and it's going to produce, you know, an income for you to help feed your family? There's a difference. Is it a tool? Is it a toy? Never use debt for consumer items. And we went through this a little bit last week. If you're using debt to put tires in the car, to put groceries on the table, something's wrong in your whole financial picture. And we need to pause and ask and think hard what is really going on. If God promises to meet my needs and I can't even see my needs met, then I'm probably violating some of his principles along the line or I could be under his discipline. Never use debt simply to increase your lifestyle. And that's what unfortunately many do. Of course, pay your debts is back as fast as possible, and use only credit cards if you're going to pay them in full each month. So I tell people, 
If you can't pay off your credit card in full every month 100%, you probably don't really need one. It's working against you. Now, I'm not bragging, but I'd be a hypocrite if I tell you to do it, and I'm not. I've never paid one cent, one interest charge since I had my first credit card when I was in high school. Never once. And that's God's grace and God's goodness and part of my dad's discipline in terms of teaching me as a young man how to use a credit card. But then as I was immersed in the scriptures in my late teenage years and began to understand what God said about debt, uh, I just believe you should pay them off in full every month. F, should I protect myself against identity theft? This is an important question. Again, this is dealing with our stewardship. If the term is new to you, Webster's Dictionary defines identity theft as, quote, the illegal use of someone else's personal information, such as a social security number, especially in order to obtain money or credit or to establish false identity. There are, of course, two principal categories of identity theft. When I first started teaching this course in 1992, this wasn't in it. Um, and the last time I taught, by the way, let me ask, how many people have ever been a, a victim of identity theft? Would you mind just raising your hand? No, have been. You have been. All right, just, just uh, maybe about a dozen, not too many, so that's good. Um, the last time I did it, about 30% of the people raised their hands. So maybe people are getting smart. There is, um, a, there is true name, what they call true name identity theft, where a thief uses personal information to open a new credit card account, establish cell, cellular phone service, or to open a new checking account in order to obtain blank checks. Um, there is also account takeover identity theft, where an imposter uses personal information to gain access to the person's existing accounts. Very often, the thief will change the mailing address on an account and run up a huge bill before the person whose identity has been stolen realizes there is a problem. Since uh, personal identification is not needed for most transactions made on the internet, it's much easier for a thief to use your stolen identity. Thieves um, especially, especially target the social security numbers of children since their information tends to go unnoticed for a longer period of time. And identity thieves sometimes can get your personal information by hacking into the databases of either major corporations or even small vendors. Occasionally, I order from this small vendor in Atlanta, and I always have to tell them, I said, do not put my credit card in your system. Oh, we have a secure system. I said, I doubt it's more secure than Home Depot, and they were hacked, and I doubt it's more secure than Target, and they were hacked. People are really good at it. We had a, one of our members just testing our system. This was 15 years ago. We were just in the children's building. And he sat in the parking lot with his computer to hack our system in the offices. And he was successful. He was good at it. He knew what to do. And Rick got really smart and <laughs> he's not going to break into our system. <laughs> So, um, but people are good at these things, and they're getting better sometimes. So you don't want to, um, if you can help it, leave your credit card registered. Uh, some of the things that get me is like uh, some of these 
credit companies like Equifax. <laughs> they were hacked. You know, this is like a corporation that is designed to protect your identity, and they're hacked, and then I get a notice that, you know, they're willing to offer me some, you know, one year of free protection. <laughs> and then, of course, when the free protection is over after a year, they want to sell it to me for whatever the fee is. And I think, this almost feels like a scam, this national scam. I'm sure it's not, because somebody would be in jail if it was, but... People can break in. However, experts in this field say that it is more likely the thief will steal your information through dumpster diving, shoulder surfing, email phishing, computer hacking through an unsecured network or mobile scanners. Uh, one morning I came in early, and it was a Saturday morning. I got here at 7.30, and I thought, is that somebody's feet hanging out of the dumpster? I drove back to the corner, and there's this guy in the dumpster going through our trash. And I said, can I help you? <laughs> and I told the guys in staff meeting, I said, make sure every document that's important is shredded, because this guy was going through our trash. People do that. Um, sometimes because it's not like they're looking for something valuable or food, but they're looking for credit information. Shoulder surfing, you know, in a grocery store or at an ATM, they're looking over your shoulder. Email phishing, uh, where they send you an email and they're just trying to get you to respond. And it's usually things that are, you know, too good to be true or there's a sense of urgency or sometimes there's a wrong hyperlink where there is one letter difference in the name of the corporation. And if you don't read it carefully, you think, oh, this is uh, such and such and it's not that at all. Um, unsecured networks, like in an airport, and you're using the free Wi-Fi, that's not wise. Because there are people, especially in international airports, that will sit there and they're waiting for you to click onto the network, and they're getting onto your computer because it's an unsecured network. These are professionals. And then, of course, mobile skimmers. When we go to Israel, one of the things I do in our pre-meeting is I tell the people to have a little, uh, and I, I show them, it just looks like a little sleeve, like you get your hunting license in and the hunting license goes in that little sleeve, a little credit card. I mean, it's that thin now. They make them paper thin. You used to have to buy these metal boxes. And, but in airports, there are people with these little machines and they come and sit next to you and they're stealing the credit card information that you have off in your wallet. Uh, and then, of course, more recently, in gas stations, they say when your card is real loose or it doesn't fit in there right, sometimes someone has inserted uh, a skimmer of sorts to steal credit card information before they're caught. Some steps you might take to protect uh, yourself would include shredding all important papers with your name or address on it. So like if you get one of these uh, credit card applications, and I feel like I get them almost daily, um, don't just throw them in the wastebasket. Shred them. Shred them because there's information on there people can steal. Uh, be cautious of shoulder surfing ATMs, so forth. Do not put checks in the mail at your home mailbox. Uh, people go into mailboxes now across America and they steal meal, mail that is waiting to go out and the little flag is up. Put complicated passwords on all accounts. Occasionally, it's good to uh, 
to do that, I was at a friend's home. And how many of you have a garage door open or, you know, the little punch pad? How many of you got one? Yeah, so I was just playing with him. I said, now what year did you graduate from high school? And I pretty much calculated the year he was born. And (laughs) how many of you have, maybe I shouldn't ask, the date of birth as your garage formula to get the door open? Look, people are smart, and they know that we're kind of creatures of habit. We use our initials plus maybe the year of our birth or the month and year of our birth and our initials, and they learn to hack accounts. So make them complicated. Do not carry your Social Security card. No need for it. Don't put it in your wallet. Never put it on your checks. Don't put your phone number on your checks. Don't put your credit card numbers on the Internet unless it's encrypted on a secured site. And again, that's somewhat a relative statement. Monitor all bank statements in every credit card every month. Order a credit report once a year. Just review it. Make sure that someone hasn't hacked you. Now, I have one of the cards I have is Discover, and once a month they say no one has applied for credit in your name and all this. And it's a free service. I don't pay for it, but there are services like that. Make a list of all your credit card account numbers and bank account numbers, keeping them in a safe place. So if you did have your wallet stolen and you had three credit cards in it, you're not wondering, what's my number? You have a place where you can immediately call the 800 number. I mean, technically, with most credit card companies, you're only liable for $50, if that. But still, if someone is successful at stealing a credit card and ultimately stealing your identity, there can be a long process to fix things. And it's a lot of time. If you receive an email request telling you your credit card information is invalid or is expired, of course, proceed with caution. Number 11, if you discover that you are a victim of identity theft, be sure to act quickly, contacting all appropriate authorities and companies to stop the thief's further use of your identity. In identity theft cases, the victim often has to prove his or her innocence. The burden remains on victims to straighten out the credit mess the imposter has made, which surprises many who expect the police, the credit granters, the credit reporting agencies, or others in positions of authority to help them. Even though you may not be liable for the imposter's bill, you can still be left with a bad credit report that you spend months, sometimes even years, to correct. According to the U.S. Bureau of Justice Statistics, an estimated 17.6 million persons were victims of at least one, uh, identity, uh, one incident of identity theft last year in 2018, with many more having experienced attempted identity theft. You get those calls. I do too. You know, how, how they get your phone number. I just, of course, immediately block it. And I thought, I'm going to take this call yesterday. Yesterday, some guy sounded like he was from India and he had a real strong accent, sham, and he sounded like he was India. And he was telling me that uh, I had uh, some credit problems. And I thought, who is this guy? He's fishing. He's fishing for a social security number. And Uh, these people are good, and they especially go after the elderly. Not that I'm elderly, but, you know, in either case. Identity theft is real. Why? Because the sin nature is universal in humanity. From conception, man is sinful, and sin did my mother conceive me, King David wrote. All of us like sheep have gone astray, Isaiah said. Jeremiah reminds us, the heart is more deceitful than all else and desperately wicked.
take a commercial, how to pay your home loan off sooner. We had a commercial last week. This is for your home loan. Now, what I did here was uh, printed an amortization report. If you take a 30-year loan, that's 360 months. This would be a $200,000 loan at 3.75%. So how do you pay your home mortgage off sooner rather than later? Well, I listed the first 12 payments and then the last two in the 30th year. Uh, you can see the payment amount is consistent. And this is a raw payment. It doesn't include an escrow account. By the way, that's another good reason to have excellent credit. You can manage your escrow account. It's not a big factor right now because interest is so low. But when home mortgage loans were 10 and 11% and you were able to manage your own escrow, you, know, you were drawing interest on that money rather than the bank. So payment number one, 926.23. The interest on that payment, this is incredibly low. Because, I mean, we haven't seen rates like this since the 1960s. Interest would be $625 in the first payment. And the principal reduction would be $301.23. With excellent credit. When I was in Dallas, you could not get a homeowner's loan cheaper than 12.5%. So on my first payment... It said principal reduction, $1. <laughs> Seriously, I have the whole amortization sheet back there in my office because I used it to teach my children how to pay a mortgage off sooner rather than later. Payment number two, same amount. Interest gone down a bit, a dollar, less than a dollar, $624. Principal reduced, $302.17. Now, let's think this through. Number one, use an amortization calculator to determine the affordability of a 15-year loan. A lot of Americans cannot afford a 15-year loan. Or if they can, they feel uncomfortable taking one. But you should know at least what a 15-year loan would look like. And now there are these amortization you know, calculators online, and you just plug in the numbers, and it will tell you exactly what your payment is going to be. So it's not a mystery. Sometimes people are unsure they can take the higher monthly payment that comes with a 15-year mortgage. If so, consider the following. In a typical 30-year mortgage, about half the total interest you pay will accumulate in the first 10 years of your loan. So if you saw the whole amortization schedule, all 360 payments, Obviously, the interest gets lower and lower and lower and lower and lower. And you come down here to payment number 359. The interest is $5.76. You can see the amount that you put towards principal. And the last payment, the interest is $289. Well, the majority of that interest is in the first 10 years. So even if you can accelerate the payment uh, in the first 10 years, you'll save a tremendous amount of money. And that's because your interest rate is calculated from the very high principal amount that you owe in the early years. So, number four, when the Lord provides extra funds, add a principal reduction payment from column four to the monthly payment amount. For instance, let's just say for the sake of argument, you're getting ready to make your first payment on a brand new house, and you have an extra $400 
in your budget for whatever reason. Maybe, maybe, maybe your mother sent you money for your birthday or Aunt Susie died and she sent you $1,000. I don't know. Um, but you have a little extra money. So what you would do on that first payment, if you wanted to apply it, is you'd have a check for $926.23. And then you would add to it, see payment number two, column four, $302.17. You'd add $302.17 to that $926.23. And how much would you save? $624.06. Do you see that? You following me? Okay, so let's say you had $1,000 for the sake of argument. And you said, well, I'm going to make payment number one, but I also want to take the principal on payments number two, three, and four. That would uh, amount to $909 in some change, right? And you would save $624.06, $623.11, and $622.17. That's all money saved that you would have paid in interest. So when you have an amortization schedule, you can see exactly how much is interest, how much is um, principal reduction, and if you add in even intervals the principal reduction, you can pay down the loan that much faster. Now, sometimes people will say, um, there's different strategies like, some people will say, well, have it withdrawn from your bank account every two weeks. And what you end up doing is you're making, you know, there's 52 weeks in a year, so you're making an extra two payments is what it's doing. The only problem with that is you cannot monitor to the dollar um, your loan. And that's really helpful. When I paid my loan off, for my home, I had a $120,000 loan for my home that I built in Seabrook. And I made the final payment. The, the, the mortgage company told me I still owed 900 and some dollars. I said, oh no, I don't. And I had that amortization sheet and it showed every single payment I had made. And they said, you're right, we were wrong. So. It's just like anything else. Banks make mistakes sometimes when you go to balance your checkbook or sometimes even on a mortgage. So you want to make sure that you are monitoring it and you can monitor it to the dollar this way. Now, I know $300 is a lot of money uh, for most of us to add an extra $300, but sometimes we have it. And again, what I'm going to encourage you to do tonight is to get debt-free so that you can pay down the mortgage quicker. So money that you're blowing at 17% interest on some credit card, if you have no credit card payments and you're able to put additional money towards the mortgage, you'll be debt-free that much sooner. All right? That's how it works. There's a lot of gimmicky things, and there's people who will charge you to do what you can do yourself. All right, so it's really simple, and if you're not sure on that, let me know and I'll help you. Go to the next page, 111G. We've got to keep moving here. Should I take any steps to prepare for an economic collapse? Again, this is new material um, because I never included it in years past because I didn't really think 
we would get to this point, but I think it's a possibility now. We noted earlier in this section of a recent study showing that 40% of Americans are unable to handle an expected $400 expense. The U.S. national debt currently exceeds $22 million. Two weeks ago, I gave you the, to the dollar the debt clock on July 11th. Since July, 11, uh, July 10th, since July 10th, if you opened up the debt clock tonight, it's increased $50 billion in two weeks. It just keeps going. And that clock's spinning, and it's spinning fast. Uh, type in national debt clock if you've never done it. It's kind of interesting to see all the stats that they have in every major area of American debt. So we're currently exceeding $22 trillion, and the U.S. is not alone with many other countries also carrying large national debts. Because our nation's debt is, owned in US is owed in U.S. dollars, we can simply borrow more money or print more money to pay back our creditors. But if you keep printing more of something, it eventually becomes worthless which has never happened to the United States dollar. Never happened, fortunately. Another dimension to this problem concerns those countries in debt that do not have the ability to print their way out of a debt default, which due to our international connectedness may be the start of a global debt crisis. Doesn't necessarily have to start in America, this crisis. For instance, Greece owes $370 billion. That's 178% of their GDP. And the uh, payment plan they have, they'll pay it off in 2060. <laughs> and they owe it in euros. But as a part of the European Union, Greece cannot print more euros. They're not on the drachma anymore, they're on the euro. And they don't have the authority or control to print euros to pay their way out of debt. This is why Greece has required bailouts in recent years with this same problem plaguing other EU nations like Italy and Portugal. Why is it so important for Great Britain to get out of the EU? This is the reason. This, this is what they're hammering. They're afraid that they're going to be responsible for some of these other countries that are on the edge in terms of debt and that it will destroy their economy. It will only take a handful of EU countries who are unable to print their own currency to fix their debt crises that might cause some of the largest banks in Europe who are highly invested to quickly become insolvent. This is why, like, they went bizarre a few years ago. And, of course, we were in Greece for a trip, and there had been a run in the banks just a few weeks before, and then they shut all the banks... And we were reading in the paper there in the hotel of these people. It just felt bad for them, these elderly people. They had taken as much their money as they could out of their bank because they were afraid they would never see it again. And then people were breaking in their homes and stealing their money. It was, it was just really, a, it was a mess. The potential, number nine, for a collapse in the U.S. is also linked to the problems that the European Union has as the second largest economy in the world. If some of the major European banks in turn are unable to pay their creditors, this insolvency will spread through the world's financial markets like a plague, freezing many world banks and credit markets. Apart from our own financial irresponsibility in both federal and state governments, some of the state governments are a mess. The state with the largest economy in the United States is California. 
California is $1 trillion in debt. We don't talk about the state debt. But like in Dallas, some of these police officers and firemen who have worked for 30 years who want to retire, they're negotiating how much they're going to pay them now in retirement because the whole thing is imploding. We're not too bad in South Carolina. We're just $15 billion in debt. But we're a small state. But the, the state problems are potentially huge. You know, Chicago, the city of Chicago is on the verge of bankruptcy. And they're wondering how they're going to pay these people who have for 30 years put into a retirement program. These are the kinds of problems that are beginning to escalate. With the growing national debt before too long, America will either be forced to, into a hard default. A hard default is by refusing to pay the, the debt ceiling, which we just approved, we, the government, yesterday. They approved it informally. It's going to be formalized here in a few weeks. So we're going to borrow another $3.2 trillion, and we're going to raise the debt ceiling. Why? Because if we freeze the debt ceiling and we cannot pay our vendors, so to speak, those who in the good faith of the name of the United States have, um, you know, lent us money, then we are in big trouble. It would create a financial meltdown, and they know that. Or we could do a soft default. Again, if this goes long enough, this is what's going to happen. You reach a point. I mean, what if you, you know, had your credit card and you just kept filling them up and just filling them up and you got more credit cards and you kept filling them up and, and you had so many credit cards, you're paying all these minimum payments and then you get to the point, you, you don't have any more money to pay. That's where we're heading. And it's very sad what is happening. A soft default is when the government would do what a couple of European nations have already done. And that is, is they devalue your money. So if your life savings is $50,000 in the bank and you wake up one morning because they have now um, uh, put it up against certain commodities like gold and silver and other things, and now it's worth $5,000. That's the kind of thing that happens, whether it's a Rwanda or whether it's Venezuela, which, is, which was the richest nation in South America. And now you've got people who, they're just struggling to get food on the table. If the problem is not addressed, addressed a crash will sooner or later be on us. And we've got these people who are telling us, more free stuff. It won't work. You can't do this forever. If this were to happen, either a hard or soft default, people in America would long for the good old days of the Great Recession because we will most likely have not a great depression, but rather a great collapse, reaping what we have sown. We've never had a great collapse. If you want to understand what life is like during a collapse, talk to people who lived through the Great Depression. My grandfather, I used to listen to his stories. My mother and my father were children of the Depression. Born in 1923, my dad. By 1933, one out of four workers lost their jobs, and those who kept there significantly lost wages. The day the stock market crashed, October the 24th, 1929, they called it Black Thursday, if you remember. Many investors lost their life savings in a single weekend. 
taking until 1954 for the Dow to recover. It was incredible to see what was happening. People were going and borrowing money from a bank and then throwing it into the stock market. And you had, you know, maids and presidents of corporations. And all this money was wiped out. Most recently, the U.S. economy almost collapsed on September the 17th, 2008, on the day when panicked investors withdrew a record $140 billion from money market accounts for the needed cash to fund their day-to-day operations. If withdrawals, they say, had gone on for even another week, the entire economy would have halted which would have meant trucks would stop rolling, grocery stores would run out of food, and businesses would have shut down. Fortunately, the Federal Reserve Chairman, Ben Bernanke, who's considered a Great Depression scholar, and the U.S. Treasury Secretary, Hank Paulson. (laughs) Uh, Hank Paulson's one of my son's heroes. I had a son that worked in the Bush administration, and he became an assistant to the vice president, and was was in his office when this whole thing was going down. And, uh, I mean, Bush was worried. He was panicked. What are we going to do? And they, these guys saw the signals that were happening, the withdrawals were taking place, and they knew exactly what it meant. The bailout plan they developed supplied enough cash to prevent a total collapse, making the 2008 financial crisis damaging but not catastrophic. So they used a combination of things, remember QE1, QET, and they just printed billions and billions of dollars. Again, you print money long enough, it becomes worthless. Unfortunately, many of the tools employed, they have near, not totally, but near been exhausted. I mean, you can only lower interest so much, right? You, you get to the point where you can't lower it anymore. When we ponder these challenges in the end, we must trust our Father in heaven who cares about us and promises to meet our needs. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. The worst that could happen, a lot of people were panicked. You know, we had a number of people in our church who really suffered when it happened. A lot of builders who... We're out of business. One brother called me and thanked me. He said, I took your course in 1996. And he said, I paid off my house. He said, I ran my business with as close cash as I could. He said, and all these guys are out of business, but I'm still functioning. I said, well, thank the Lord. It's his word. It's his principle. It works. But a lot of people were really panicked. We had people coming to our food pantry who were making decent incomes, fifty, seventy-five, a hundred thousand dollars a year, and they were they had no job. And that was just a taste of a collapse. It wasn't a depression, it was a deep recession, now called the Great Recession, but it wasn't the Great Collapse. But you can, you know, I tell people, what's the worst that could happen to you? You could starve to death, die, and go to heaven. <laughs> That's not a bad option, right? <laughs> I mean, what's the worst that can happen? Why, 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 like, be uptight about this? Remember, too, that in a financial 
oh yeah, so I wrote rather than, the worst that could happen is that you would die sooner rather than later and go home and be with the Lord in heaven, right? Absent from the body, present with the Lord. Remember too that in a financial crisis, we can help each other. And the single best existing community to do that is the local church, i.e. Acts 4, there's a crisis in Jerusalem, there's a deep famine, And so the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. I've taught on that verse. It was not socialism. We looked at it in the context of the whole of Scripture. But there was a love and a community that God's people showed as they came together and they cared for each other. With that said, it can be helpful to have... Now, I'm a total hypocrite here because none of this is true of me, all right? So I'm just, I'm just telling you. With that said, it can be helpful to have some organic or urban gardening skills, some seed in hand, 60 to 90 days of food and supply and a ready heart to share the gospel because many may be open and searching and looking for answers. When crisis comes... Sometimes God uses the crises to soften people's hearts. The biggest disasters will be in the big cities. You know, I could eat pecans in my yard, I suppose, and I'm not a good fisherman, but I'd learn fast. And <laughs> I had a squirrel once. One of the brothers here brought me squirrel hunting, and you know, the general rule is if you shoot it, you eat it. All right. So we skinned that rascal and. He put it in a plastic bucket, and I brought it home. He said, let's soak a couple days, you know, just taste better. (laughs) I pulled that thing out. My wife said, I'm not cooking that rat for anything. (laughs) She said, if you want to eat that thing, you can, but I'm not. (laughs) I didn't eat it either. I threw it away. (laughs) Anyway, um, but, you know, Look, America is drifting from God. And it might not be a bad thing if the bottom did fall out. Because we are so self-sufficient as a nation and so arrogant towards the living God. It might be the thing that God could use to bring around a lot of people. Let's talk about Roman numeral six, developing a plan for eliminating debt. Developing a plan for eliminating debt. One, you must develop your own convictions from Scripture. You cannot live off of someone else's convictions about debt. You must develop your own convictions from the Bible. By the way, I didn't hit this on point 25, but I think you'd have three to five days if a crisis hit before the supermarket shelves would be empty. Three to five days. Just keep that in mind. What would be one of the telltales if the stock market dropped more than 5,000 points? Go to the grocery store and buy some 50-pound bags of rice, all right? A, you must develop your own convictions. You cannot live off of someone else's convictions about debt. You must develop your own convictions from the Bible. Failure to have biblical convictions about debt will lead you to compromise when tempted with wanting more, or when facing difficult situations. If you evaluate your financial success by the standards of others around you, then you will probably never get out of debt. As our government has lowered interest rates in order to stimulate the economy, many Americans have borrowed even more, going deeper in debt. 
we're not in better shape when the great recession took place. We're actually in worse shape right now. As noted earlier in this course, according to Experian, credit card debt now exceeds $1.03 trillion, the highest it has ever been since 2008, with an average debt of $8,640 per household, with 71% of Americans carrying a balance. 71%. Student loan debt is now the second highest in the household debt category, behind only mortgage debt totaling $1.56 trillion with the average student owing $28,650. I talk to the homeschoolers every time I do a seminar, and I talk to them about, you want to really pray as you raise these children that they can come out of college debt-free. And I said, if you're going to spend any money these days on education, don't spend it on the college degree. Don't go into debt on the college degree. Maybe on a graduate degree. Because now a college degree is really not that much different than a high school degree was 40 years ago. Because they're a dime a dozen. So you almost have to have one to function in the culture. But because of the government program that you have for access to money, it's falsely escalated the cost of education across America. It's just absurd what they're getting now, uh, you know, for these, for these schools. The new president of, maybe he's worth it, 650K a year. He just got hired at USC. Um, across all lenders, 44% of Americans have car loans totaling $1.129 trillion. It's a new record with a record 7 million people now 90 days or more behind on their auto loan payment, according to the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. The solution to both government and personal financial problems is very simple. We need to stop spending money that we do not have. If we meditate on God's Word, our thinking will be brought into conformity with God's ways, and we will find truth that will set us free. If you do not get control of your debt, then your debt will ultimately control you. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed through the renewing of your mind so that you can prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. B, you must confess your disobedience to God and sometimes to others. You've got to come clean before God. If after a thorough study of God's Word, you are convinced that you are in debt because you have been living beyond your God-given means, then confess your sin to God. Now, we talked about how to define that earlier in this section. But again, if God gives you $50,000 this year and you choose to spend sixty-five dollars because you're going into debt on this and that and buying this, you're basically saying, God, I'm not satisfied with what you've entrusted with me. And the Scripture reminds us in Proverbs 28, he who covers his sin will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes him will have kessed mercy, the loving kindness of God. We must confess our poor stewardship, our enslavement, our tarnished testimony, and our ungodly example to those involved, maybe a wife, husband, children, relatives, friends, asking for forgiveness, <clears throat> and when necessary, making full restitution. Remember, true confession involves repentance a change of attitude or action. That's what the word confess, homo legeo, homo, 
the same legeo to say when we confess the word homo means we're saying the same thing that God is saying about the sin. So when we confess our sins, God is both faithful and he's righteous to forgive us and to cleanse us. That, of course, is not a salvation verse. That's a promise written to those who are saved. C, you must make a commitment to change. You have to make a commitment to change. Commitment is not statements like, I want to get out of debt. I think I will get out of debt. One of these days, I will get out of debt. I've been talking about getting out of debt. No, commitment is a decision of the will that you will get out of debt. To make that decision a reality, you need a plan to get out of debt. You need a plan. Remember, your plan will not work without prayer, and so you pray like it all depends on God as you work like it all depends on you. If you abide in me and my word abides in you, there's a humility that we need to have when we're dealing with sin, that we need God's help because we can't do it ourselves. Just know that change for many will be painful and that many of God's people will not have the courage and the resolve to seek out change until they are forced to change by suffering from the painful decisions they have made. I was counseling someone this week and I hadn't spoken to him in several years and he asked me if I would call him and same adult son, probably 45 now, in another state, back on drugs. I said, you've been down this road, what, three times now? Four, he said. I said, well, I hate to tell you, but you're a part of the problem. I said, you didn't hear me the last time. I said, I told you last time you were part of the problem. You're bailing this kid out every time he's in trouble. And sometimes it's not until the, the pain that comes as a result of the drug exceeds the pleasure that it gives that the individual gets serious. And sometimes it's not until the, the pain of our debt really exceeds the pleasure of having this new thing and that new thing that we really get serious. So Jeremiah reminds us, our, your own wickedness will correct you and your backsliding will rebuke you. You need to construct a plan to get out of debt. You need to construct a plan to get out of debt. You must be operating on a budget, which we will discuss in the next section of this course. You must be reading God's Word for the renewal of your mind. You want to be doing that every day anyway. It's part of the discipline of setting your mind on the things above. Remember, many Christians today are in financial trouble first and foremost because of their ignorance. We're just doing what the culture did. Again, when we were more Christianized as a culture, people thought differently. In the 1950s, you got a 15-year mortgage. And that was true in Canada until I think the late 80s, maybe early 90s. You couldn't get a 30-year mortgage. But that all changed right around the early 60s. In the 50s, it was different. Car loans, you had a one-year car loan. And if you were poor, maybe two. But our whole view of debt has radically, radically changed. Um, B, they do not know that God's wor- what God's Word says about finances. But as we seek God through His Word, He promises to give us wisdom that we lack. 
By wisdom, a house is built, and by understanding, it is established, and by knowledge, the rooms are filled with all precious and pleasant riches. You must prioritize your debts and begin repayment, starting with credit card and consumer debt loans, furniture, appliances, etc. You should contact your credit card company and other consumer debt creditors to see if you can improve the terms of your debt. Sometimes they'll work with you. It doesn't hurt to ask, right? You do not have because you do not ask. Uh, You may be able to lower your interest rates by speaking with the customer service department. Also think about moving some of your credit card debts to new accounts with lower interest rates. Now, there's a caution here. If you can move a balance to a credit card with a 0% introductory rate for 6 to 12 months, this can help you save a lot on interest. But just know when the interest comes back, it won't be what it was before. Usually most of those deals where you pay 0% for 6 months, then when it kicks in, you're paying like 24% interest. So that's like a very carefully made calculated decision because you can dig a deeper hole really, really fast. It would probably be wise to cut up your credit cards until their balances are paid off in full. Make a minimum payment on every credit card with the exception of the card with the highest interest rate. Direct as much as you can above the minimum payment towards that debt with the highest interest rate and the costliest finance charges, late fees, over-the-limit fees, cash advance fees, etc. When the highest interest rate card is paid off, move on with the extra funds to the card with the next highest interest rate. Now, understand, many eliminate your debt plans, and there are many, We'll tell you to start with the smallest balances first, working your way up the scale for encouragement. Oh, so you got this little balance, a $300 card, and well, it's not smart to pay that card off first. If that card's at 8%, you've got one over here at 24%. It's just stupid. Well, but we want to make you feel good. I'm not into a feel-good program. I want to get you out of debt. So you work your way up the scale for encouragement, they say. It is definitely wiser and better stewardship to pay the higher interest rate first, feeling the pain of past decisions while building your convictions, not on the sum feeling, but on the wise stewardship principles of Scripture. After consumer and credit card loans are paid off, pay off your auto loans. During this period, you are adding to your monthly car payment additional funds previously applied to your credit cards and consumer loans. Those are paid off. Now you're paying off your car. Once your car or cars are paid off, you will want to continue to make a car payment to a special account for another three to five years to replace your vehicle so that ideally you can pay cash for it. The additional credit card and consumer loan monies can now be used to establish a contingency fund and an emergency fund, which we discussed in the previous section on saving. Your debts are paid off. Now, some would say, do the emergency fund first. To me, you know, if you've got these credit cards at 18, 19, 20% interest, get those knocked out as fast as you can. Um, Five, you must cooperate as a family and work as a team. You've got to work as a team. Together you will need, 
you'll need to adjust your budget to allow for more than the monthly minimum credit card payments. This will involve sacrifice and living on less than you take in. The only way to reduce debt is to reduce your lifestyle and apply the savings to your debt. So you don't rationalize. Do not rationalize thinking, I've been obeying God for a month. I think I'll go to the mall this afternoon. <laughs> you know, and, No, you must pray for wisdom and discipline to be successful. Now, many think money, more money, is the solution. Remember, there are multimillionaires who lose it all because they owe so much and so get control over your money. And so get control over your money or the lack of it will control you. It's not, I just need more money. We think, well, if I just had a, instead of making 50000 I made seventy-five. I'd be better shape. It, it really is. I told you, I, when I was director of executive ministries, I had the CEO of 7-Eleven, CEO of Wyndham Hotels. I had the, a guy who owned the largest Mercedes dealership in the world. He went broke. He was busted. Because he had elevated his lifestyle so high that when we had a recession in Texas, and it was severe in Texas. He busted. Nobody wanted to buy his Mercedes. So it's not just a, a factor of money. It's a factor of how you're managing what God has given you. You must give thanks for each victory. Give thanks to God for every victory. I will pray in the end here. You must consider selling some of your assets to pay off debts. You know, you've got some junk up in the attic. Put it on Let Go or Buku or one of these or, you know, some of these websites and they cost you zero. And your junk is another guy's treasure, right? And if you haven't used it in five or ten years, you probably won't use it in the next five or ten years. And then when you, um, you know, you die, your kids won't have to deal with all this junk. They don't want all your junk. They really don't. I mean, what do they, they want to sleep on your bed? They, they, they want your couch. They got their own couches and beds and all that stuff. There's a few trinkets in the house they may want. My parents lived in a house for 52 years, and it was four, four stories, three stories and a basement, and the basement was like, you know, as big as the first floor, second floor, third floor. There was so much stuff. I'm still dealing with it. It's terrible. <laughs> You must purpose before God to let this happen again, and you must change your spending habits driven by a renewed mind. Remember, you did not get into debt overnight, so do not expect to get out of debt overnight. You should consider getting outside counsel to evaluate your plan or your budget. Let someone else see your budget that might be able to spot some leakage and help speed the process. Oh, so you got a cell phone. Yeah, what's that cost you a month? 128 bucks. Well, I see you got this credit card over here at 22%. How about we get you a flip phone? You can stay with the company. Just a flip phone, 38 bucks a month. You know what you can do with that money? You could apply it towards this credit. I got to have my cell phone. You know, I check my email. Got to check my Facebook every 10 seconds. You got to make decisions. You got to make some sacrifices. 
So they're looking for leakage. I used to do all the financial counseling. I don't. It's impossible for me to do it. So we have some trained people in the church, and some of our staff does it. But I could find leakage in almost any budget someone could bring to me if they were in debt. There's leakage in most budgets. Oh, you've got a $500 deductible if you ever wreck on your car. Let's change that to $2,000. Let's see what that will do to your yearly auto insurance. Ah, you could take that additional savings and get some of these debts down. So there's always leakage. If your current plan does not allow you to identify the year and month that you will be out of debt, then your plan is not specific enough. Go online and use one of the many debt repayment calculators that will show you how long it will take you to pay it all off, all your consumer debt. I used to have to do that by hand. I'd sit down with someone in the office in the early 90s. There were no debt calculators like this. Now they've got all these fancy debt calculators. You can put in every debt, the interest rate, and it will tell you like when it's all paid off. And that's helpful to know because it helps you to really see clearly where you are at. Oh, I'm not going to be out of debt until 2027. March of 2027. But then you say, oh, if I take this leakage over here in the budget and I apply it to this, oh, look how it changes things. And it really becomes a motivator. And you have a real plan. Um, You may need someone as a good friend to be accountable to during this time. Very often, God will allow us to live with the sting of poor stewardship decisions in the past as a motivation to avoid them in the future. Hebrews 12, and you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, quoting Proverbs here, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and he scourges every son whom he receives. Know too that God sometimes accelerates the process of debt repayment because we are learning to be faithful with what he has entrusted to us. Again, this passage always comes back to me. He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. He's talking about money. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. Therefore, if you've not been faithful in the use of unrighteous mammon, worldly riches, who will entrust the true riches to you? Do not stop your contribution to God's work Sometimes Christians, someone called me on the Bible line on, on Tuesday, and they wanted to know if, um, they, they quoted a financial guy, and I said, well, I haven't read that financial guy saying that, so I'm not going to say that he said it because I haven't read it, and people say things that I've said, and they're not even close to being true, and, but let me comment on what you're saying he said. Supposedly, he said, if you're in debt, stop tithing and take that money and use it to pay off your debts. Sometimes Christians think or are ill-advised to put a hold on their giving in order to use these funds for their debt repayment. The Bible never mentions anything about hitting a pause button on tithing. You have already studied with me from Malachi 3.10 and Luke 6.38, given will be given to you, that God actually promises to bless you if you faithfully tithe. And until you deal with this problem, you will continue to have problems. We need to give to God first, offering Him the first fruits of our increase. Honor the Lord from your wealth. 
and from the first of all your produce, so your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. In section two of this course, we learn that giving is typically expressed on three levels. First, tithing being the scriptural mandate to give 10% of your earnings to your local church. People sometimes say, I want to give my tithe to search the scriptures. I had a guy call me from another state, and he said, you know, I'm I'm in a lousy church. And I said, do they have the gospel? Yes. He said, but I want to tithe to you. I said, your tithe doesn't belong to search the scriptures. It belongs to your local church. Then there are offerings about the tithe, above the tithe, reminding me that tithing is not simply an issue of percentages. It's an issue of the heart. So we start with the tithe, but it's not, oh, 10% gave that to God. Don't have to give him anything else. What if God brings some need along that's above your tithe and God wants you to give that? We need to be sensitive to the Spirit of God. And then there's that radical kind of generosity that some often with the gift of giving are able to do as well. Way above an offering. I mean, many believers have noticed that when they stop tithing, their finances seemingly get worse. And they do not see the reality of Malachi 3.10. God said in, 3, in 3.11. In 3.10, he says, I'll bless you when you tithe. In 3.11, he adds, I'll rebuke the devourer for you. As a general rule, Christians who are disobedient will find that if they cannot live off 90% of their income, then they probably can't live off 100% either. <laughs> it's just, it's, I'm telling you, it's a rule. You think, well, if I, if I had the whole thing, I, look, if you can't make it work with 90%, you're not going to make it work with 100%. That's just life. And what you discover is when people start tithing, just everything begins to change in terms of the way they look at the finances. Because as Deuteronomy reminds us, Moses wrote in the Torah that the tithe is a reminder that it's all God's. It's not ours. Lay aside one-tenth of your increase each week because you cannot disobey God in your giving while expecting Him to bless your plan of getting out of debt. In addition, your capacity to make wise plans will be significantly diminished when you're living in disobedience. If we're in sin, our heart's not in tune with the Lord, and He really can't direct us, and we can't claim that promise in James 1 when we're in a trial We should, in the midst of the trial, ask God for wisdom. And certainly being in serious debt is a trial. When you make your next monthly budget, pay God first, then use what you have left to pay your weekly, monthly, annual bills, and finally your debts. Stick with it. You'll get out of the consumer debt, and when you're out of consumer debt, you'll get out of your mortgage debt, and you'll be operating on an entirely different level, not like the average American, because the average American is not doing it right. Let's bow our hearts in prayer. Father, I know part of my pastoring and shepherding people is teaching the whole counsel of Scripture. And I know some of these truths that are heard tonight, some who will hear it for years to come, that will be difficult. But we thank you that when our minds are renewed and we actually do what you say, we prove, we experience, we realize that your will is something that is good and acceptable and perfect. 
Father, we have many greedy people in our government whom your word says are acting wickedly and that they are borrowing money that they have no intention to repay. Many to gain political power in office. And I can't help but think, Father, that maybe this isn't part of a judgment from heaven itself. But help us as your people to be prepared. Thank you that you remove all fear, that you are a God who is sovereign, whose providence extends even to the details of a sparrow falling to the ground and the hairs that are numbered on our heads. Thank you, our Father, for your incredible love for us and your commitment to us. Thank you that in our failure and sin, that when we confess and repent, you are faithful to forgive us and to cleanse us. That today may be for someone the first day of the rest of their life. So we commit our way to you. We know that without you we can do nothing, but with you all things are possible. So we thank you in advance that you will be glorified and honored by the way we live and the kind of stewards that we become. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.